Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's really only a few weeks before we see a transfer of power in Washington. The final days of the Obama administration are winding down as the Trump transition team makes ready to move into place. And already there's much speculation on what will happen to the Affordable Care Act after January 20th. Well, you know, Mark, that while Trump, the candidate, was very vocal about repealing and replacing the health care law, President-elect Trump has actually been kind of quiet on how he plans to do that once in office, intimating that there are aspects of the law which are quite popular and perhaps shouldn't be tampered with. While the Trump transition team has been rather mum on some of those details, Margaret, the Republican leadership has been quite clear. House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell have indicated they are aiming for a swift repeal of the law even if there's not a fully formulated replacement plan in place. Well, they are, but there are a number of health industry analysts who are saying not so fast. They need a 60-vote count in the Senate for a full repeal of the health care law, and they don't have that. So the thinking is there will be more of a dismantling of certain provisions of the law by undercutting funding for individual parts of it, for instance. And in spite of their eagerness to eliminate the health care law, it's definitely going to take some maneuvering and not likely to happen as quickly as some think. Economists from both sides of the aisle are warning that a complete and swift repeal would bring about chaos in the health industry and many millions of Americans would lose coverage and be part of that unfortunate chaos. Our guest today is advising the Trump transition team on how best to navigate the health care debate. The Honorable Michael Levitt is a highly regarded health policy strategist in the country, and he brings considerable professional gravitas to the table. He's a former three-term governor of the state of Utah, secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under George W. Bush. Mr. Levitt has sound policy advice for the incoming Trump administration on how important it will be to build a coalition around any changes to health policy. I'm really looking forward to that interview, Margaret. We certainly are, Mark. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with the Honorable Michael Levitt in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Dramatically rising drug prices have been deemed one of the leading causes of the rise in health care costs. Now some states are attempting to crack down. A number of states have joined a civil lawsuit against several pharmaceutical companies for allegedly price fixing and conspiring to divvy up the market share. 20 states filed a lawsuit against Mylan, Teva Pharmaceuticals, and four other generic drug makers alleging that they conspired over things like steak dinners and girls' nights out on the pricing of two common generic drugs, that according to one copy of the complaint. The drugs involved in the lawsuit include the delayed-release version of a common antibiotic, doxycycline hyclate, and the diabetes drug, glyburide. Doxycycline, for example, rose from $20 for 500 tablets to $1,849 between October 2013 and May 2014. Connecticut Attorney General George Jepson, who led the civil suit, says their investigation has revealed this is likely just the tip of the iceberg. 
state's complaint names former Heritage CEO Jeffrey Glazer and former Heritage Vice President of Commercial Operations Jason Malik. The two had been charged earlier by the Justice Department. More cause for worry among those infected with the Zika virus, especially pregnant women. A new study shows far more extensive brain damage in babies born to Zika-infected mothers than previously thought, even in the absence of the obvious abnormalities such as microcephaly. A study of 125 Zika-infected women in Rio de Janeiro done by Brazilian and American scientists and released by the New England Journal of Medicine noted almost half pregnancies had adverse outcomes ranging from fetal deaths to serious brain damage. Of the 117 infants born alive, 42 percent had grossly abnormal brain scans or physical symptoms. Scientists warn these numbers are alarming and bear more scrutiny. As the Obama administration readies to hand over reins to the incoming Trump administration, many health care consumers are concerned for what may happen to their coverage if GOP leadership make good on the promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. One of the aspects of the law provided protection for Americans under 65 with pre-existing conditions so they couldn't be denied coverage. 55 million Americans have some diagnosable pre-existing condition that puts them at risk. That fact has led to a spark in social media activism. The Twitter handle hashtag the 27 percent has provided a platform for Americans with pre-existing conditions to weigh in on their fears of losing coverage. President-elect Trump has acknowledged protections for Americans with pre-existing conditions has been a popular aspect of the law. Health equity advocate Dr. Atul Gawande launched the Twitter page to allow patients to lend their voices and their concerns. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with the Honorable Michael Levitt, advisor to President-elect Donald Trump's healthcare transition team and founder and chairman of Levitt Partners, a consulting company focused in on healthcare policy. Governor Levitt also served as both administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. A former three-term governor of the state of Utah, Governor Levitt has served as chairman of both the National Governors Association and the Republican Governors Association. Governor Levitt was the lead advisor on Mitt Romney's presidential transition team, having written about the experience in Romney Readiness Project 2012, Retrospectives and Lessons Learned. He earned his business degree from Southern Utah University. Governor Levitt, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. I'm pleased to be with you. Governor, you've earned quite a reputation as one of the most highly regarded strategists in the healthcare arena, and you also bring a vast amount of expertise from both state governance as well as running several federal agencies within the Bush administration. And now, here we are watching President-elect Trump's transition team lay the groundwork for the incoming administration, a team uh, you are now lending your advice to. And as you assist the president-elect's team, what are some of the more important decisions that the Trump team needs to make in establishing a successful new vision for health policy in America? I think it's important to look at the transition, not just as a health policy issue, but as a, a national transition. This is the most important transition of power that occurs literally in the world because of the role the United States Place. There are three basic jobs. The first is to put a team on the field. The president-elect has nominated in the health area Congressman Tom Price. The second is then to begin to ready an agenda for the first 100 or 200 days. A fast start is vitally important for any administration. It's important 
important to answer the mandate that it's clear that the people of this country uh, gave the new administration and the new Congress. The third uh, is to begin coordinating closely with Congress so that that agenda can be successful. And then there's a lot of other details that have to be taken care of in terms of how you manage the attention of the world. One example has been the interaction with foreign leaders. The president-elect will be meeting by phone dozens of foreign leaders, and each of them have an agenda, and we've seen that play out in the news. Well, Governor Lever, when you were last on with us a few years ago, you, you spoke then of the need to recalibrate some aspects of the Affordable Care Act that you thought would make it work more effectively. And your advice to the Romney campaign in 2012 was keep certain aspects of the law in place and repeal some things such as the insurance mandate. So now we've been through a number of years of open enrollments. More than 20 million Americans have gained coverage. The industry and the delivery system really has seemed to recalibrate itself to adapt multiple uh, regulations and directives in the ACA. But still, of course, there is a lot of talk within the incoming administration about ways to repeal and replace the law. How do you feel the incoming administration should proceed on this track? And how do you think repeal uh, works without causing great disruption to the healthcare industry and the delivery system for millions of Americans. What's your thoughts on that? The one certainty in the next several months uh, about healthcare is that there will be a bill that will pass Congress that will be titled Repeal and Replace. What is uncertain is what they will define repeal to mean and what they will define replace to mean. Mm -hmm. Pretending that the law never happened is not an option. It happened. Lots has occurred since that time. But the Republicans have, for three elections in a row, campaigned that they would repeal and replace the law. And I think they have no alternative but to fulfill that, given the mandate for change that occurred in the last election. So I believe there will be a bill that will pass, and there will be parts of the Affordable Care Act that, in fact, can be changed. And I think one area that will look quickly to see will be obviously the individual mandate. I think that's likely to disappear. Now, the problem that all of this brings is they do have to replace this because mm -hmm. there are 20 million people who now have coverage and many other Americans whose health care will be affected mm -hmm. by this. So at least their appearance right now is that they will repeal the portions that they believe can be replaced, and they'll give themselves some time. Some people say two, other people say three years in which to actually formulate the replacement. One of the commitments that Republicans have made is that they don't intend to do this in a way that does not involve a bipartisan support. And I think that's important. Uh, one of the primary mistakes that was made in the passage of the Affordable Care Act is that it was done entirely on a partisan basis. Mm -hmm. And they seem committed not to make that mistake again. Well, that's a great observation. And uh, we've had David Gergen on the show, who's also said one of the failings of the Affordable Care Act, that it, it did not have that bipartisan support. I wonder if we could take a moment to look at the person president-elect has chosen to run the Department of Health and Human Services. Representative Tom Price is an orthopedic surgeon from Georgia, a conservative Republican congressman, has been leading proponent of repealing the health law. And I'm wondering, you know, you're one of 22 uh, secretaries of HHS, so you have a catbird seat of uh, what it takes to, to run that office. What general advice do you have for incoming Secretary Price? The Department of Health and Human Services is a large department. Uh, it includes 27 different units, and they're big, and they're spread out. The Centers for Disease Control, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, all of the welfare programs, a big part portion of the Homeland Security portfolio, huh. the Food and Drug Administration, 
All of these are large branded organizations who are roughly categorized in the health area, but there are 80,000 employees and a trillion dollar budget. So this is not just about the Affordable Care Act. There's a very substantial portfolio of other responsibilities, and one of the things I would offer him uh, in terms of advice is there will be many other components of the job other than just repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. The president-elect has chosen a very able man to run the department. Tom Price is a physician. He understands policy, and he understands the granularity of the law from a very intimate standpoint, that of a practicing physician. One of the second pieces of advice would be to recognize that there are lots of perspectives, and part of the duty and the responsibility of the secretary is not just to, to drive your own views, but to understand the broad consensus of people when possible, sometimes you have to go slower in order to go fast <laughs> uh, and uh, because there's so much potential disagreement. And we've seen that actually play out in the Affordable Care Act. Here we are, six years later, essentially starting over again. And it's because they insisted on going fast. If they'd gone a little slower and obtained bipartisan support, it's unlikely, in my judgment, that we would still be debating this. Well, Governor Levitt, we rightly so, I think, uh, are very focused right now on the coverage issue. But I'm always mindful of just how much uh, delivery system transformation was called for as well under the Affordable Care Act. And some of those forces had had been in play. I know you've been engaged uh, in a great view of the transformations that were happening in healthcare around the country. And they're really about meeting the increased demand for primary care, for care that was better coordinated, uh, care that delivered better outcomes more safely, uh, hopefully uh, with some cost effectiveness at well. And we saw a growing number of accountable care organizations and certainly a big expansion in federally qualified health centers um, and, of course, hospitals as well. And all these forces in many communities joined together to improve care coordination and patient outcomes. What do you think these organizations should be thinking about as they prepare for changes under the Trump administration? The most important change that has occurred in health care potentially over the last 60 years is the transition from fee-for-service payment to some type of payment where providers are paid on the basis of value. All of the things you named are really driven by the payment system. The question is, will this transition from fee-for-service to value payment continue under the new administration? And I think the answer to that is yes. It will because the change is not being driven simply by political ideology. It's being driven by an economic imperative that if we want to continue to have great health care, we have to change the way it's paid for because there's no way we can continue to spend an increasing share of the American economy on one thing, health care, and continue to be an economic leader in the world. So the alternative to this is just to continue to drive down fee-for-service payments, and ultimately those affect quality. So the only thing to do and the smart thing to do is to change the way we pay for it. And I believe that the Trump administration uh, will not only agree with that, but they may in fact hasten it. We're speaking today with the Honorable Michael Levitt, founder and chairman of Levitt Partners, a consulting company focused in on healthcare policy, one of the health industry advisors to the Trump transition team, former three-term governor of the state of Utah. Governor Levitt also served as both administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. We've just had this incredible divide in our country in terms of trying to figure out a pathway to provide needed care to the underserved and uninsured in this country. And you wrote a book, uh, Finding Allies, Building Alliances, 
eight elements that bring and keep people together. How in this highly charged partisan world, we're going to make sure that we have a bipartisan solution moving forward. We have to acknowledge that Washington government has moved over time into a much more partisan process that's driven by the fundamental belief that the other party won't do the right thing. And therefore, we have to wait until we have power, and then we will do the right thing. And another thing we can count on uh, is that people who gain power typically overreach, and that's one of the things that leads to another shift in power. So I think the key here is to recognize the big danger is overreach. That is to say, we've got this appetite now because we haven't had power to do everything exactly the way we want it done. But again, it goes back to the phrase I used earlier, that sometimes you have to go slower in order to go faster. I believe the Republican Party has a very impressive and historic opportunity Mm -hmm. to put in place a governing structure that will last for a long time if they have the discipline not to overreach. What drives this kind of thinking is what I refer to as common pain. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you have to have enough risk that Mm -hmm. everyone is willing to sit down and to talk and to give up some things that they'd like to have, but they just can't and have it sustainable. One of the the risks that is uh, being weighed right now is how do you get that? Do you do it by not passing anything, or do you do it by passing a repeal and then working on a bipartisan basis to overcome the common pain? I think there's a good case it can be made that that might happen. I don't think there'll be any bipartisanship on the repeal, Mm -hmm. but I think there may be a substantial amount of bipartisanship on the replace. I wonder if I I might ask about one area, obviously, that's of great interest to us, and that's something that traditionally has enjoyed bipartisan support, and that is the community health centers in the United States that serves about 24 million people. And over these last years, the drive to transformation in the health centers has really accelerated. Certainly the advancement of interdisciplinary care, team-based care, outcomes-focused care, training of our clinical workforce with the advent of the teaching health centers and training primary care uh, physicians and the programs to train uh, primary care nurse practitioners and the like. So as we move into this new administration, do you think that that's one of those areas where there may be bipartisan agreement? How do you educate all the new members of Congress about these models that, you know, really were not hearing a lot about. Any observations on that for our listeners? I served as Secretary of Health during a Republican administration, and um, President Bush made very clear that one of the top priorities he had in health was to expand and improve the community health center system. And uh, each year we received additional resources, and I was under very direct orders uh, uh, to not only expand the number, but to improve the funding. And we actually either dramatically increased funding to nearly 4,000 of them, but we added 1,400. Not to take credit in any way, I, I think what we're saying here is that there is bipartisan support for community health centers, and they play a very important part of not just the safety net, but in the new system of primary care, they've become a a part of the foundation of primary care. So I think there's reason to be not just uh, optimistic, but uh, to be quite optimistic about the future of community health centers uh, in this new payment system. Now, it's going to require that community health centers themselves learn to adapt and to be part of the larger network, not just the safety net, as some people think them. Uh Uh, That means new skills, means new ways of doing things and reaching out and becoming part of of the broader community. Well, Governor, you also served three terms as governor of the state of Utah. 
And, you know, we always think about states as incubators for changes, and you were certainly someone who brought a number of notable innovations about population health. And you've seen what happens when a state population gains access, uh, the uh, Medicaid expansions that have happened. Now we have Representative Ryan contemplating perhaps a new way to sort of envision how Medicare works. What do you see the positives and negatives surrounding both the proposals around expansion of Medicaid, the privatization of Medicare? How should governors and state legislators be thinking about their work in health planning and policy with all this transition going on? Well, we we find the country in in a peculiar situation now because we have, I think, 33 states that have expanded Medicaid, and you have 18 that have not, which means that you have federal funding going to 33 and 18 that aren't, and that's not a circumstance that's really consistent with mm-hmm. the long-term objective of Medicaid. Uh, I think what we'll see is um, we'll see some changes, mostly giving states more flexibility, and we may also see some of the, in addition to the flexibility, we may actually see less funding in certain of the optional populations where states will have the ability to use funding more flexibly by the mean that in certain populations there there may be some flexibility on what the benefits are. I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that unfolds, but I don't think there's any lack of commitment to taking good care and um, helping those uh, who are in hardship. Governor Lovett, one uh, thing I think we can be pretty sure of, regardless of what happens with the health care law, is that 21st century health care is undergoing and is going to continue to undergo dramatic transformation with new technologies and biomedical advances, genomics, personalized medicine, uh, really helping us transform what we can do for our patients. And actually, we recently had uh, Dr. Victor Zhao on the show, the president of the National Academy of Medicine at the National Academies of Science. And he talked about the advisory panel that you uh, and other experts participated in creating some scientific and biomedical recommendations for the incoming president. So as you focus your lens towards uh, the future of healthcare and healthcare reform, both inside and outside the policy world, what are the trends that you think are going to dominate healthcare transformation in the coming decades? Well, I think we'll clearly see a change in the way people get paid, away from fee-for-service toward more of value payment. Uh, I think we'll see more emphasis on primary care. Um, uh, I think that will reflect in lots of not just the payment structure, but also the way training is done and the way people are encouraged and incentivized. Um, I think we'll also begin to see a, a, a pronounced um, reshaping of the way healthcare providers organize themselves, uh, rather than everyone being a general contractor, if you will, I think we'll begin to see networks uh, of care, and we'll begin to see the insurance system move toward that, where we have more narrowed networks where people, in exchange for uh, price concessions, people will um, agree that they will draw their care from uh, a prescribed network. That'll have to be done voluntarily, but I think it will happen. I think we'll begin to see in, um, a, a more of the risk for health care shifted toward uh, consumers. At the same time, I think we'll see consumers have um, more deliberate choices. I think those are perhaps some of the, the more significant pillars of, of change. 
We've been speaking today with the Honorable Michael Levitt, founder and chairman of Levitt Partners, a consulting company focused in on healthcare policy and one of the health industry advisors to the President-elect Trump transition team. You can learn more about his work by going to levittpartners.com or follow them on Twitter at Levitt Partners. That's L-E-A-V-I-T-T. Governor Levitt, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Well, thank you for including me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Recently, House Speaker Paul Ryan mentioned the Independent Payment Advisory Board created by the Affordable Care Act, saying it was, quote, about to kick in with price controls on Medicare. We haven't heard much about this board since the first year or two after the law was passed. So what has happened with the Independent Payment Advisory Board? Well, this 15-member independent board, which would be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, is tasked with making recommendations on how Medicare can cut costs. It would make binding recommendations if Medicare spending exceeded certain levels. But no one has yet been appointed to this board, which is to consist of medical professionals, economists, healthcare experts, and consumer representatives, and its actions haven't been triggered due to slow growth in per-enrollee healthcare spending. In other words, the IPAP hasn't been formed because it hasn't been needed yet. As the nonpartisan Kaiser Family Foundation explains in a July 2016 report, the IPAB process is set to be triggered for the first time next year, based on the Medicare actuary's most recent spending projection. Without a board in place, the Secretary of Health and Human Services would be tasked with making the recommendations for spending growth reductions to start in 2019. Under the ACA, the recommendations could be replaced by other measures passed by Congress to reduce spending or overridden altogether, but that would require a three-fifths majority in each house. The board is limited in what it can do. It can't raise taxes, premiums, or cost-sharing, restrict benefits, or otherwise ration care. According to an analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation, any recommended reductions would come from, quote, Medicare Advantage, the Part D prescription drug program, skilled nursing facility, home health, dialysis, ambulance and ambulatory surgical center services, and durable medical equipment. With the new administration coming into office in January, however, it's unclear what would happen to these provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Sub-Saharan Africa leads the world in maternal and infant deaths each year. According to an annual report from Save the Children, an estimated 397,000 babies died at birth in that region in 2013, and some 550 mothers died per day as well. 
Most of the causes have to do with lack of access to medical care in these low-resource regions, and often the local midwives lack formal medical training to prepare them to conduct interventions in the event of a life-threatening event like a hemorrhage or an infection. We know that 90% of all the deaths that we see today could be prevented if the mother had had you know, access to this you know, really basic skilled care during the childbirth. Anna Frelin is CEO of the Maternity Foundation, a Copenhagen-based nonprofit dedicated to eliminating maternal and infant death in the world. Their organization has created an intervention for midwives living in low-resource areas if they just have access to a smartphone. It's called the Safe Delivery App, and it provides comprehensive training for midwives that teach them and guide them on what to do in the event of a birthing crisis. This is really a matter of building the skills of the health workers who are already out there and empower them to be able to better handle the emergencies that, you know, may occur during a childbirth, such as, you know, the woman starts bleeding or the the newborn is not breathing and so forth. So first and foremost, it's a matter of finding a way that we can reach the health workers and build their skills. Frelin says the real promise of the safe delivery application lies in its ability to provide ongoing obstetric and neonatal training so that local midwives can gain important clinical knowledge over time. The Safe Delivery app has been designed to be culturally relevant and easily understood, and it's received the United Nations approval for wider deployment. The Maternity Foundation plans to have the Safe Delivery app in the hands of 10,000 healthcare workers across the region by next year, potentially impacting a million live births. A low-cost, culturally sensitive mobile app that offers immediate guidance and assistance to midwives and health workers, the backbone of the healthcare system in low-resource areas, empowering them with ongoing support and knowledge that can improve birth outcomes. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.